Good afternoon, everybody. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, our fourth uh, Monday lecture of the summer session. And we are deeply privileged to welcome Alice Schreier, who is no stranger to Rare Book School. Alice is the Roger and Julie Baskis Vice President for Collections and Library Services at the Newberry Library in Chicago. She was previously Associate University Librarian for Area Studies and Special Collections at the University of Chicago Library. And before that, she was Director of the University's Special Collections Research Center. While at Chicago, Alice fundamentally reconceived and expanded collections, programs, and spaces to promote the use of rare materials by faculty and students alike. Talk to anybody in the profession and you will know that in your midst is a pioneering librarian. Among the collections added to the university library during her tenure are the Saul Bellow Papers, the Yoffe Collection of African American Children's Literature, and the Bibliotheca Homerica Langiana. Alice also was instrumental in leading the development and expansion of digital collections at the University of Chicago as the co-chair of the university's Digital Collections Steering Committee. Before coming to Chicago, Alice Schreier held positions at the University of Delaware, the Library of Congress, and Columbia University. From 1988 to 1993, she was the founding editor of the ARL journal Rare Books and Manuscripts. She was a member of the ARL Task Force on Special Collections, for which she wrote the lapidary white paper, Education and Training for Careers in Special Collections Librarianship. Lapidary indeed. Book collectors and librarians continue to refer to Alice's 2001 essay, Elective Affinities, Private Collectors and Special Collections in Libraries, which was originally a lecture delivered at the Library of Congress. In addition to teaching her much celebrated course on special collections librarianship at Rare Book School from 2001, to 2012, she has served our school in an exemplary fashion as a member of the RBS Board of Directors since 2004, the secretary from 2009 to 2014, and as chair of the board from 2014 to 2016. Rare Book School has no greater friend Rare Book School has no wiser counselor. Please join me in welcoming Alice Schreier. Now that I know my words are engraved in some form of lapidary stone, <laughs> get down to it. Good evening, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's always a pleasure to be at Rare Book School, and um, I'm especially delighted to be here this evening to reflect on uh, my recent move uh, from an academic research library to an independent research library. 
one that isn't part of a college or university. Much to my surprise, I discovered a bibliographic culture there that was entirely new to me, and I welcome the chance to share my observations on the experience with you tonight. A year ago, I left the University of Chicago Library to become Vice President for Collections and Library Services at the Newberry Library in Chicago. New challenges were definitely part of the appeal, but I also had some qualms. After spending my entire adult life, not only as a professional, but many years before that as a student, at institutions of higher education, how would I mark the seasons without the cycle of an academic year? How does a library determine the collecting policies it should follow without local students and faculty whose research and teaching needs must be met? They make it very clear what you should be collecting. How do you promote collection use to an amorphous potential constituency without a course bulletin to scour for likely suspects? Who are the users anyway? Who takes care of IT upgrades and security (laughs) without a university-wide system? And so on. I knew that the Newberry, the Folger, the Huntington, the American Antiquarian Society, and other independent research libraries had splendid collections and associated programs, but I had never thought about them systematically or as a distinctive group with its own organization, the Independent Research Libraries Association, or IRLA. IRLA has approximately 20 members, and here are some of the membership criteria. One, our libraries has collections of national or international significance that are capable of supporting sustained research in a variety of interrelated subjects and of attracting scholars from all over the world. Two, they are organized as privately endowed independent institutions, each with its own active incorporation or charter, its own board of trustees, and a full-time professional chief executive officer. And three, their primary purposes are to collect and to make available the records of the past, to promote research in them, and to share those materials with scholars and the public. I forget which of the toys you get to play with when you want to move. And this is a, um, an image that will look very familiar to any rare book school student, especially those um, in uh, Desbib this week, but it's actually from a scene at the Newberry. So these early characteristics summarize the basic facts about the Newberry. It is a standalone institution with primary source collections that support research and an array of programs that promote, provide access to, interpret, manage, and conserve them for use by scholars and members of the public. But the description does little to evoke the bustling cultural, educational, and research institution that I found at the Newberry, nor does it do justice to the integrated collection-based research that makes it a bibliographical community. Today's Newberry was shaped by the circumstances of its founding and the personalities of its founding trustees. So let's begin at the beginning. The Newberry came into existence as a bequest from Walter Lewis Newberry, who made his fortune in Chicago shipping, commerce, banking, and real estate. 
Newberry died in 1868 and left a will providing that if his wife predeceased him and his two daughters died without heirs, one half of his estate would go to establish a, quote, free public library. As a result of the early deaths of both daughters, the provision took effect in 1887. Newberry's executors, Aliphalat Blatchford and William Bradley, considered what type of library would best serve the needs of the young city. They decided to establish a non-circulating research and reference library since the Chicago Public Library, founded in 1873, provided circulating materials. The library would be for the, quote, serious scholar and serve the public good. At the time, a unique concept. The trustees saw no inherent conflict between these two goals, and they understood that the public role would mean the library should be more should be an educational institution, not merely a repository of books. These assumptions shape the collections and the identity of the Newberry. The trustees immediately hired William Frederick Poole, founding librarian of the Chicago Public Library. Poole had previously directed the Boston Athenaeum and the Cincinnati Public Library, and he was a widely respected historian and leader of the developing profession of librarianship in the United States, who served as president of both the American Historical Association and the American Library Association. In 1848, as a student librarian at one of the debating societies at Yale, Poole had begun what would continue to be his lifelong task of creating and maintaining the first index to periodical literature, which became, as many of us um, may still remember, um, uh, Poole's index. If you went to library school in a certain area, you certainly were introduced to it and later became the reader's guide. Poole worked quickly to assemble library catalogs and bibliographies to guide his acquisitions and began to acquire uh, purchase standard reference works and runs of scholarly periodicals like the ones he indexed. He expected the library would cover all fields comprehensively and grow to over three or four million volumes. The trustees were far more restrained and they exerted a far and they exerted a firm hand over Poole's purchases. After operating in temporary quarters, the Newberry opened its doors in 1893, the year of the World's Columbian Exposition um, in Chicago. Between 1887 and 1893, Poole had acquired approximately 160,000 items. The current collection includes 1.5 million books, far short of Poole's ambitions, 18,000 linear feet of manuscripts, at least 500,000 maps, 200,000 pieces of sheet music, and extensive ephemera collections. The founding trustees and the architect, Henry Ives Cobb, envisioned a building with a traditional grand reading room and separate stacks, typical of great libraries they had visited in the United States and Europe. But Poole, a strong advocate of functionality rather than monumentality in library architecture, proposed subject-based reading rooms that brought together the books devoted to each subject with staff specialists. Poole prevailed, so you can see at the door that this was the history reading room. 
It didn't take long for the space and staffing challenges created by Poole's arrangement to become clear. Although reconfigurations began early on, it wasn't until 1982 that the Newbury moved its collections out of the Cobb building into a dedicated staff building, which you can see at your left. The late 19th century was a period of enormous growth in Chicago as the city raced to rebuild after the devastating fire of 1871. Numerous cultural and educational institutions were founded, among them the Art Institute of Chicago, the Chicago Symphony, and the University of Chicago to fulfill the ambition to transform Chicago from a rough prairie town into a city recognized for its civilized qualities as well as its economic muscle. In 1886, another leading Chicago businessman, John Carrar, wrote his will, obviously influenced by Newberry's. Carrar be bequeathed the remainder of his estate after gifts to faculty, friends, and other philanthropic organizations, quote, for the erection, creation, maintenance, and endowment of a free public library to be called the John Carrar Library and to be located in the city of Chicago, Illinois, a preference being given to the South Division of the city inasmuch as the Newberry Library will be located in the North Division, end quote. After Carrar's death in 1888, his will was contested and finally sustained in 1883. I'm sorry, 1893. 1893. So the Newberry trustees realized that the city's three libraries, the Chicago Public Library, Carrar, and the Newberry, should aim not to duplicate titles, especially expensive reference books, but to spend their money, quote, in building up their own special departments, end quote. In 1896, the Newberry, Carrar, and Chicago Public Library formally embraced a policy of what we would now call cooperative collecting. Carrar took on natural sciences and useful arts, and the Newberry transferred its collections in these areas. Medicine went to Carrar a decade later, and the Newberry became a library of the humanities and history, ultimately focusing on Europe and the Americas as it continued to refine its scope to match its resources. For example, it commissioned Bertolt Laufer, a field museum staff member in the early decades of the 20th century, to acquire an East Asian collection, but, and he did, but he, they soon recognized that it lacked the capacity to develop comprehensive East Asian collections and sold, it to, sold uh, the one he had formed to the University of Chicago. The Newberry now has clearly defined core collections that it continues to evaluate and adjust. By the 1940s, the Newberry's then president, Stanley Pargellis, began to collect Midwest corporate archives, valuable research materials that he felt were at risk. Railroad archives, including the Pullman companies, are among the Newberry's most frequently used collections to this day. Chicago and the Midwest more generally are now active collecting areas in part because of the changing collecting landscape in the city. All research libraries review and revise collection development policies to shift uh, to reflect shifts in disciplinary emphasis and at um, an academic library, uh, the programs of the institution and programmatic emphases. 
but it is very difficult to stop or even reduce collecting in a specific area, even when a department closes in an academic environment where any part of a collection will find a faculty champion. The founding trustees knew little about libraries or research, but they were very good businessmen and immediately understood the economic benefit of dividing collecting responsibility. It also helped that they were all civic leaders who sat on many of the same boards. The Chicago story may be unique in its particulars, but it illustrates the ability of an independent research library to focus its collections since it does not serve the teaching and research needs of a specific group of college or university students and faculty. From the very beginning, Poole was acquiring institutional rare books and en bloc collections, including the 1889 purchase of the Count Pio Reese Music Library, especially strong in early Italian music history and theory. In 1890, the Newberry purchased the collection formed by Henry Probasco of Cincinnati, consisting of apparently of approximately 2,500 um, volumes, including books of hours, incunables, Shakespeare folios, rare Bibles, and early editions of Homer, Dante, and Horace, and an Audubon elephant folio. Uh, to me, it's always been exemplary of this um, sort of metropolitan collecting agreement in Chicago because it made, the Audubon made two subsequent journeys, both south of the, in the city. Once it went from the Newberry to the Curar Library when Curar took on the sciences and then to Hyde Park when Curar um, merged with the University of Chicago due to financial difficulties. So Curar is no longer an independent research library and obviously is also a cautionary tale for what can happen um, to one without good financial management. So again, this is the original um, Curar play, the, well, reading chronologically uh, from down up to, uh, from Probasco to Curar, and the middle one is the um, label that the University of Chicago added when it, it came there. The trustees had at first turned down the Probasco collection, concerned about its um, cost in relation to the need to buy so many, quote, useful and practical books. But after lengthy negotiations and a substantial price reduction, Poole was able to convince them that it was a great bargain and would be very useful for scholars, and indeed it is. There may also have been some Chicago boosterism at work, a motive that was definitely a factor in the 1964 purchase of the Lewis H. Silver collection for $2.7 million. Silver, a Newberry trustee, had built an amazing collection of English and continental first editions, primarily from the Renaissance, with many uh, unique or exceedingly rare items. This is an image of um, uh, the first boxes of the Silver collection, and it's such a typical Chicago. <laughs> po what? Posed? No, definitely. Not. Anyway, um, there are some extraordinary um, things in the um, uh, silver collection. Um, this is a, a speculum um, humani salvationis, uh, salvation mirror of human salvation. 
uh, from the mid-15th century that was made um, for uh, the library of Philip the Good. Um, so it's um, the Annunciation and then three parallel scenes from um, the Old Testament. Um, one of the many first editions. This is one of the very, very few copies of um, Montaigne in the original binding, paper binding. And this is um, um, from the uh, silver first folio um, and um, with some annotations including this one, which says, Anne Park is, and then you're supposed to, Anne Park is that I did love, uh, so connect it to the first line. The collection, uh, the silver collection was a great fit, there's no doubt, uh, for the Newberry's collection, but the chance to keep it in Chicago and beat out the competition, uh, the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, Austin, was literally on the verge of signing an agreement when the Newberry trustees approved the purchase, must have added to the appeal. A 1911 slide from one of the first, uh, a 1911 gift from one of the first trustees, Edward Eyre, more, exemplifies better the focused and deep subject collections that characterize the Newberry and most independent research libraries. Eyre's collection consisted of 17,000 pieces, manuscript and printed accounts of the discovery, exploration, and settlement of the Americas. It has grown thanks to additional gifts and endowments he created to more than 130,000 volumes, over 1 million manuscript pages, 2,000 maps, 11,000 photographs and 3,500 drawings and paintings, and is considered one of the strongest collections on American Indians in the world. A few weeks after I began, we learned that a delegation from Chichi Castanango in Guatemala would be visiting to see the Popol Vuh, perhaps the Newberry's most famous artifact. The creation account of the Quiche Mayan people, the Popol Vuh, which is translated uh, variously as Book of the Council, Book of the Community, Book of the People, and the Sacred Book, weaves together Mayan stories concerning cosmologies, origins, traditions, and spiritual histories. It is considered by many Mayans as their equivalent to the Christian Bible and is held in deep reverence. The Newberry's manuscript of the Popol Vuh is possibly the earliest surviving copy. It was transcribed between 1700 and 1715 by a Dominican priest and linguist using Latin script to present the Quiche original with a side-by-side -side translation into Spanish. The copy left Guatemala for France sometime after 1852, was purchased by Ayer in 1883, and has been at the Newberry since 1912. The visitors arrived carrying several shopping bags. We brought them into the classroom where the manuscript was set up and they began to take out votive candles and arrange them around the manuscript. They didn't try to light them. No. I was very relieved. Um, when this was done, the chief began to pray. After the service, through an interpreter, he expressed gratitude to us for keeping their treasure safe, conserving it, and producing online and print facsimile versions for their people. Many special collections include sacred textual artifacts with deep religious or cultural significance, 
that we must make available to individuals and groups who wish to incorporate them into their cultural practice. Those who come to visit the Popol Vuh are not usually accompanied by diplomatic attaches and interpreters. The Newberry welcomes all of them with great respect, fulfilling the responsibility, its responsibility as a custodian of culturally sensitive materials. The John M. Wing uh, Foundation collection on the history of printing is another example of Erla's criterion that members' collections must be of national or international significance. The Wing collection came uh, to the library as a bequest in 1918, <coughs> along with an endowment for a custodian, and it is a she, recently um, uh, appointed um, the first female custodian um, and future acquisitions. This is um, a constructed alphabet, uh, the so-called Newberry alphabet, which has been much studied as part of the... There are several constructed alphabets that are quite famous. This is actually the the proof for uh, Centaur type um, with uh, Bruce Rogers' um, annotations on the top. The collection surveys the development and spread of printing, typography, book design, fine printing and illustration, illustration and calligraphy in over 2,000 in Cunabula, milestones of design and technological advances, printing and handwriting manuals, specimen books, and the papers of book, graphic, and typographic designers, printers, and calligraphers. I love this. It's a calligraphy class from the 19... 19- 40s at the Newberry. Don't see any women there. Wing materials are used extensively by printing and design historians, but the collection also has an intensely loyal and active constituency of practitioners, printers, typographers, book and graphic designers, all of whom would probably be considered non-traditional users at a special collections in an academic research library. They all feel very much at home in our reading rooms and classrooms. So too do genealogists, who constitute perhaps the largest percentage of Newberry readers. The Newberry has been acquiring local and family uh, family history materials for over a century, and today it is considered one of the library's core collections. And this is an early example of crowdsourcing Poole's successor, John Vance Cheney, um, urged Chicago school children to fill out family history forms and send them to the Newberry to enlarge the genealogy reference files. Through monthly Genealogy 101 sessions and adult education courses that cover DNA and other more recent family history research techniques, The Newberry trains large numbers of individuals and heritage society members to find locally and privately published materials and use online sources and tools effectively. (coughs) On the Tuesday after Labor Day, the halls of the Newberry filled with eager young men and women who reminded me of undergraduates on the first day of classes, so I felt very much at home again. They were a group of about 30 undergraduates from member colleges of the Associated Colleges of the Midwest, ACM, who had arrived for their, quote, (coughs) semester abroad in Chicago. (laughs) Especially since it lasted into December, I hope they knew what they were doing, but they were all from the Midwest. 
For the next few months, they were embedded at the Newberry for a course taught by two faculty members from ACM schools. They had classes in the morning and in the afternoons conducted research in the collections. <coughs> Each one also had a work-study assignment in the library. That was another thing I could never figure out, how you got things done in an independent research library when there weren't armies of students on work-study who could do uh, the paging and reshelving and, and other um, essential tasks. Um, at the conclusion of the semester, the students presented their papers to their classmates, instructors, and an audience of Newberry staff and fellows. This past year, 2016, was the 50th anniversary of the ACM program, and many alums who attended the reunion, and they came back in full force, described the transformative nature of their experience. Some of them say explaining that it led them to, and others gratefully that it led them away from graduate school, <laughs> and giving them a lifelong appreciation for primary sources and doing research with them. ACM is just one of many Newberry programs that follow the rhythms of an academic year. I was very happy to um, discover. But fellowships really are at the heart of the Newberry's commitment to collection-based scholarship and a focus of library staff participation in the academic and research life of the library. The program was founded in 1942 and greatly expanded in the 70s with funding from NEH, Mellon, and other sources. Currently, the Newberry awards about eight to 10 long-term and about 40 to 50 short-term fellowships each year. Last year, the Newberries was the most highly competitive in terms of uh, applications to uh, available awards of the fellowship programs among FAHN, F-A-H-N, Folger, Antiquarian Society, Huntington, and Newberry, a cohort within Erla institutions, each of which run um, substantial fellowship and other academic programs. Around Thanksgiving, I received a spreadsheet to update listing curators and other library staff who had identified specific areas of subject expertise. This was the first step in the fellowship selection process. Over the next month, curators, catalogers, public services staff, and others read 371 applications, 156 long-term and 216 short-term. Our task was not to evaluate uh, the significance of the proposed research or the ability of the applicant to complete it, but rather to write a collection evaluation assessing the strength of the collection to support the project. Are the collections uniquely well suited to the topic? In other words, is research at the Newberry essential to its success? Are there sufficient amounts of unique materials to justify the length of time requested? Can the work be done elsewhere, even if less efficiently, by consulting several collections closer to home? And the one that I'm sure every fellowship applicant is increasingly uh, challenged to um, make a case for any fellowship um, at an independent research library or elsewhere, if the materials are available in digital form, does the applicant provide sufficient rationale for the need to consult the originals? In addition to writing several evaluations and reviewing all the ones written by library staff, I served on the Long-Term Fellowship Selection Committee to answer collection-related questions. The committees are made up of tenured faculty members from around the country, 
many of whom are prior fellowship recipients and all of whom express great respect for Newberry librarians. We were clearly part of the team helping to shape the interdisciplinary scholarly community we would welcome the following year. And this community of fellows and library staff comes together every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. for a colloquium. The presentations are primarily by fellows who often talk about their research in the collection. Library staff regularly discuss new acquisitions or report on a cataloging or digitization project. Fellows are also expected to present their work at bi-weekly seminars, distributing a 30-page paper in advance to those who um, indicate they plan to attend. Their reports testify uh, to how much they value these opportunities to get feedback from fellows in other disciplines as well as from librarians. Along with the expansion of the fellowship program during the 1970s, the Newberry created several research centers to promote collection use and collection-based scholarship and publication. The Herman Dunlap Smith Center for the History of Cartography the McNichol Center for American Indian and Indigenous Studies, the Center for Renaissance Studies, and the William Schull Center for American History and Culture. The centers organize conferences, produce print and online catalogs and publications, and create research tools in conjunction with curatorial staff. For example, the Smith Center and the MAP Curator produce several major cartographic resources including the Atlas of Early American History and the Atlas of Historical County Boundaries. The most important work of the research centers, at least in terms of the Newberry's impact on humanistic scholarship, may be the specialized training it provides for graduate students and others in the skills and methodology of their fields. The best known of these may be the paleography programs. For more than 36 years, the Newberry Center for Renaissance Studies has provided in-depth, hands-on training in reading early scripts in a variety of languages, partnering with the Folger and the Huntington to offer residential summer programs in languages that include Italian, English, and Spanish. To expand the reach of this critical training, in 2013, the Mellon Foundation awarded a grant to the center to create an online a set of online digital tools to access practice transcribing and annotate French manuscript documents dating from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. The majority of the 100 manuscripts digitized um, as examples come from the Newberry's own collection. The French Renaissance paleography website produced in partnership with St. Louis University Center for Digital Humanities, the University of Toronto Libraries, and ITER went live this past January. The site includes um, partial transcriptions, background essays on selected manuscripts, an interactive map, and information about manuscript conservation, transcription, and editing conventions. The esteem in which cataloging and catalogers are held at the Newberry is, for me at least, perhaps the most striking example of the Newberry's bibliographical culture. Cataloging, typically considered a so-called backroom function of a library, is regarded as a scholarly, mission-critical activity. Decisions about acquisitions, conservation, exhibition descriptions, as well as responses to researchers' queries 
often call upon catalogers' expertise. The Newberry has a long-standing tradition of producing high-quality records that are widely, uh, widely respected and reused by other libraries. Charles Martel and J.C.M. Hansen, who were among the first group of Newberry catalogers, moved in 1897 to the Library of Congress, where they created the LC classification, which was based on the cutter system then used at the Newberry. I really wish they had... Um, uh, stayed because when I arrived, I discovered that Newberry has um, uh, a plethora of idiosyncratic classification systems that I'm still trying to learn. So, um, in an early 20th century rep annual report to the trustees, commenting on the inability of the cataloging unit to keep up with the past year's acquisitions of pre-1800 books, then librarian W. N. C. Carlton explained that, quote, in a large number of instances, prolonged and minute investigation of their origin and literary history was necessary before final and accurate catalog descriptions of them could be drafted. He compared, quote, the study, care, and knowledge required for the correct bibliographical or catalog description of such material to, quote, the archaeologist, the botanist, or the biologist. In spite of their superficial physical resemblances, individual books and other forms of printed material present an infinite variety of differences and dissimilarities. No surprise to any of us. I'm sure the trustees were surprised. As time went on, um, even he realized that choices had to be made. So by 1916, Carlton was boasting about the abridged measures he had introduced to, quote, modify a once prevalent library habit of regarding every piece of printed matter as a long-lost rarity for which an anxious world has been waiting for centuries and which consequently deserves the most elaborate cataloging and description that bibliographical ingenuity could lavish upon it probably sounds familiar to many of us. And I know um, that one member of this audience, Meredith Gozo, who I'm thrilled to, to see here, um, um, at the University of Chicago, I was a strong proponent of the so-called uh, more product, less process approach uh, that became widely adopted as part of the clear, Mellon-funded, uncovering hidden collections program. I am very proud of the work we did at Chicago. Thank you, Meredith. Um, um, the principle that something is better than nothing, I still believe is appropriate for an academic research library special collections where unmediated access must be the highest priority. But at the Newberry and, other, and at other independent research libraries, curators can connect researchers more easily with unprocessed materials and catalogers are expected to look for that long-lost rarity, no matter how seldom they find one, and contribute in an original record for it to international databases, while of course making judicious use of existing records modified to highlight the distinctive features of their particular copy when appropriate. And yes, the Newberry has a very substantial backlog. Uh, we vigorously pursue funding opportunities to help us uh, reduce it. But cataloging that supports bibliographical research is an essential component of institutional identity 
and responsibility. But so too is the search for innovative approaches to cataloging and processing printed and archival materials. On a routine basis, catalogers, curators, and archivists, often in consultation with fellows and research center staff, discuss how to provide special forms of access and process ephemeral materials. These are just a few of the um, current Clear Wing um, um, project that we're going to finish um, actually this month, uh, which was in fact to um, catalog printed, printed ephemera from uh, well, an 18th century broadside regulating the press to uh, lots of late 19th and 20th century ephemera. So the, um, this month we will complete a clear grant to process wing collection ephemera, which is being arranged by printer and processed with EAD finding aids. A new ad initiative focuses on over 250,000 road maps, road atlases, travel brochures, automobile guidebooks, and related travel ephemera, which we believe to be the largest such archive in the country. This is a uniquely 20th century genre of print culture that is of great interest to geographers and cultural, social, and local historians. But most libraries, even those with very distinctive map collections, pretty much ignore them. Item level cataloging is out of the question, of course, what to do. Bibliographically, if we think books and other forms of ephemera are um, complex or complicated, as Jeremy and I were debating the distinction with perhaps a difference before, um, these are maddening, utterly, utterly maddening from a bibliographical standpoint. Um, so um, a team of archivists, catalogers, and curators are shaping a pilot project to test an archival processing approach. What arrangement will work best for most of our researchers? Geographical region, printer, we have the full archives of Rand McNally and several other major map publishers, so that is, since we're so intensely interested in print culture history, doing, a, um, as we did with Wing, a, a printer-based or publisher-based is an option. Um, geographical region, if so, at what level? Um, oil company, motor club, um, the really um, dizzying uh, set of choices. In such conversations, specialized access for researchers is balanced against the realities of larger rearages as we seek an approach that can serve as a model for other institutions. Over the past year, I have come to regard the culture of independent research libraries as ideal, a place where scholars and librarians interact daily and collaborate naturally. There are also many challenges. It was certainly not a surprise that economic pressures loom large in our Bathar, the biggest concern. Put simply, the Newberry's endowment income and that of many, if not all, certainly not all, uh, independent research libraries is not sufficient to cover operating expenses. There are exceptions, certainly the Huntington, the Morgan, the Linda Hall uh, Library in Kansas City, but, as I said before, also the very sober lesson of the John Carrar Library's demise. 
This is because rising costs for personnel, facilities, and acquisitions exceeded the growth of the endowment, which is also, of course, subject to the volatility of market forces. In addition, the Newberry and its peers have undertaken major capital projects. Remember that stacks um, addition in the early 80s, for example, at the Newberry, that, have strained, that strained its resources. The continuous cycle of capital campaigns at universities has its roots in similar factors, but independent libraries do not have alumni, at least not in the traditional sense. They rely on a combination of endowment income, annual giving, gifts and grants for all expenses, including payroll and utility. Annual giving is a crucial component of year-to-year -year survival at independent research libraries, as it is, I'm sure many of you know, here at Rare Book School. In a recent article entitled The uh, Transnational and the Text Searchable, Digitized Sources and the Shadows They Cast, Lara Putman, Putnam analyzes the impact of keyword searching, text mining, and digitized primary sources on transnational studies. Her goal is to articulate what is lost when digitization erases the difficulties of border crossing and decouples, quote, decouples data from place. Here's how she describes the perils. Quote, now you glance, you fish, you feast. But how much do you really know about the sources you find, about where they're coming from, literally, politically, culturally? End quote. Think about a scholar using only Ebo or Echo to study 18th or 19th century literature and society, or who reads uh, periodical articles online without seeing the issues in which they first appeared. As book historians, we certainly know how electronic resources conflate and obscure the history of individual copies of books and the production, transmission, and reception of texts. Bibliographical communities, such as Rare Book School and independent research libraries, are, nations, are a nation's great centers for the study of the physical book. They promote and promulgate this understanding. Humanistic scholarship and our cultural heritage would be very much at risk without them, and I am proud to be part of both. Thank you. I'm happy to take questions, and I also I think I saw Aaron Blake, so we have, is Aaron in the audience? Yeah, right. So we have one other um, member of uh, FAN uh, who can, um, has a longer history at an independent research library than I do, and certainly the Folger shares many of the characteristics programmatically and um, um, in terms of, of scholarship that I was describing uh, at the Newberry. Yes, I see a hand in the back. Well, it's very interesting because um, it, it's clear that um, a lot of scholars um, have sort of, you know, gotten the memo, right? And um, so, ironically, many of them say that they want to look for 
marginalia. And of course we know that that is so unlikely to, to be something that turns up and sometimes, I mean it appears across the spectrum of collections that you know, people are wanting to use. So um, uh, that's sort of you know, something that does turn up a lot, but it's, it's certainly not what, we're, what we are looking for. We're looking for um, um, an understanding of the context. We're not only looking for people who, uh, for scholars who are doing solid bibliographical research, that's easy. We're looking um, um, for some indication that the scholar um, understands what the physical object or, or working with the physical object will contribute to an understanding of the historical production um, of, of the material and the material text. So nothing that anybody who has ever gone to a book, rare book school course or lecture wouldn't get. I mean, it, there's no secret sauce. You know, we're not looking for a magic bullet, just an awareness, not just someone who wants to spend a year in Chicago um, you know, uh, with a nice carol in the stack sort of thing. Scott. Yeah, very, very intensively. As a matter of fact, we're working um, on the first of two multi-year um, Mellon-funded projects, and um, they really <coughs> exemplify what, um, what I've been talking about. Mellon awarded the Newberry um, four years of support, actually five. Um, one was a planning year, which we've just completed, and then two years to um, prepare for and mount major exhibitions in two entirely disparate fields. The first that we're working on now is um, religious change uh, and print, 1450 to 1700. It will coincide with um, the 2017 um, marking of the Luther um, uh, 95 theses, whatever did happen to them. Um, and um, it's certainly not focused on the Protestant Reformation per se. It will be very wide-ranging. But the grant is, is very much for an integrated research project that brings together all the divisions of the Newberry. So that, so there have, um, teams have been formed of library staff, research center staff to be mining the collection together, brainstorming ideas and so forth. So our exhibits, um, much like um, the Grolier Clubs, tend to be text heavy. And we, we struggle because um, we are uh, aiming to appeal to a general audience, and yet we take our exhibitions and the scholarship that goes into them very, very seriously. Um, I think it's a, it will be a little easier with this one because there's funding to do, you know, an online component, a digitization uh, that is not just an online version of 
the exhibit per se. I mean, we will do some sort of digital tool, whether it's an interactive map of religious change over the world or, you know, there are a variety of ideas just flying around in the ether at this point. But, you know, when you can do more intensive information and more scholarship online, you can relieve the gallery, per se, of some of the very dense textual information. We're also in the uh, middle of a planning process for entirely new exhibition spaces, uh, which will also let us um, sort of loosen it up a bit and lighten it up a bit, at least in terms of the appearance. It's quite uh, traditional now, but we take them very, very seriously. And it's very interesting because uh, in most um, libraries, I'm used to a model where the exhibition activity is in the, I mean, it's part of the library. I mean, I managed exhibitions for years, but I think the same, Erin, is true at the Folger, I learned at our visit, um, that at most independent research libraries, it's, a stand, it's, it's very much its own activity, its own um, division. So, um, yeah, they, they really are um, intensely um, researched and, and presented. Thank you. Yes? Where are interesting new acquisitions coming from? Donors, dealers, auctions, eBay? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, not so much eBay, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, libraries, um, it was certainly the case at Chicago, and I think <coughs> uh, pretty much the same at, at the Newberry, um, that curators don't have the luxury of Time. I mean, eBay is, as we all know, a phenomenal resource, especially for ephemeral materials, um, and it's it's really very time-consuming, though, to find things of interest, and, and so we don't do that much. But we certainly um, do a lot of um, work with dealers across the country and um, internationally, and um, we continue to get wonderful gifts as well. I'd like to invite all of you to a reception that follows, at which we can continue the conversation down in the reception area of Alderman One. But before we go, please join me in thanking Alex for her lecture.